All right, so we're going to study God's Word. If you've got a Bible with you, go ahead and turn toward the back of the Bible in the New Testament book of 1 John as we continue studying through 1 John. If you're a guest with us this morning, it's such a joy to have you here with us. We're, we're a church that loves the Word of God, and we believe that it is all of it is gold standard. All of it, as we receive it, it changes our lives, it transforms us. So that's why Sunday after Sunday, we come underneath the text of God's word and we wanna hear what he's saying to us through his revealed will in his word. So that's why we're studying First John. I'm gonna read in just a moment from chapter two. We'll pick up where we left off last week. But before we do that, in your notes there, I'm just gonna review something we looked at last week because last week's title was Signs of Life Part One and this week's title is Signs of Life Part Two. And so I'm just gonna review the big idea that we talked about last week. So three tests of true discipleship in John, First John, are these. There's the obedience test, So we keep his commands. It's a sign of life. It's a sign that his life is in us as we keep his commands. There's the love test. We serve, we encourage, we meet one another's needs in the body of Christ. We care about our brothers and sisters in Jesus. So there's a love test. Uh, John said, and we looked at this last week, if, if we say that we love God but we hate our brother and sister, we're lying about our love for God. So our, the veracity of our claim to love God is tested by the truthfulness and presence of our love for one another. So that's a love test. And then today is the truth test. We embrace the message concerning Jesus. We bring that on board with full conviction. We don't bend on that issue. The gospel is our non-negotiable. And then we asked this question last week, so I'll ask it again today. What could be more important than having a settled assurance that you know God and belong to him? What could be more important than having a settled assurance that you know God and belong to him? So again, we we saw this last week, but John's goal isn't to shake up the church and get everybody to question their faith. But what John is doing, he's saying, rather than you just kind of wondering whether or not he loves me, he loves me not, he loves me, he loves me not, I'm gonna give you some evidences that his life is on the inside. So I want you to know that you know that Christ is yours and you belong to him. So it's John pastoring this church to secure them in Christ. And he does it with the truth here, beginning in verse 18 of chapter 2. 1 John 2, verse 18. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. By this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not belong to us. So he's talking about this, this departure. People who used to be gathering with the church on the Lord's Day have gone out and no longer named the name. So they went out from us, but they did not belong to us. For if they belonged to us, if they were genuine believers, they would have remained with us. However, they went out so that it might be made clear that none of them belongs to us. In other words, their true colors came shining through in that moment when they departed from the faith. Verse 20, but you have an anointing from the Holy One. And all of you know the truth. I've not written to you because you don't know the truth, but because you do know it and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? 
if not the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. So there's a truth claim, a non-negotiable. Jesus is the Christ. This one is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. And he who confesses the Son has the Father as well. What you have heard from the beginning is to remain in you. Again, that word remain is used 21 times in this short letter. It's about remaining, enduring. So what you heard from the beginning is to remain in you. If what you have heard from the beginning remains in you, then you will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he himself made to us, eternal life. I have written these things to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. As for you, the anointing you received from him remains in you and you don't need anyone to teach you. Instead, his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, just as it has taught you, remain in him. I I wonder how many of you who are Christians, how many of you have ever felt shaken in your faith? How many of you have ever felt assaulted by doubt, questions, anxiety about whether or not it's real, right? You, or, or maybe anxiety about, am I, am I the real deal? Am I going to persevere to the end? Am I going to make it because I feel like I'm running out of gas? That might describe some of you. This morning, you might feel, I don't know if I'm going to make it to the end. I'm almost petering out right now. So here, I'm preparing for this message yesterday, and I get an email from New Orleans, a friend that we've known for many years. She, uh, she lost her husband several years ago, and he also was a dear friend of ours. She's been listening to sermons from our first Peter series a while back, and she said she's finding hope, and she's finding encouragement in the midst of that. And, but she also added this. These are her words. I sometimes worry about making it to the finish line of faith without Craig. Craig gave me such a strength, and navigating life without him is quite different. But here's how she ended her email that came yesterday morning. But I am still worshiping Christ. I am still singing from this disaster area that is my life. Hardship is real. Now she's quoting from the sermon. Hardship is real, but glory awaits. So one of John's purposes in this letter is to secure the faith of shaken believers. Domitian is on the throne and he's wreaking havoc in the Roman Empire and there's this massive departure. People they believed were leaders in the church are now abandoning the faith and the people are shaken and here comes John and he wants to secure them in their faith. And one of the signs of life that he gives to them, one of the evidences of genuine faith that he puts before them is are we clinging to the truth? That's what he's talking about here in this text. According to the Apostle John, If you and I would remain steadfast in the faith until the end, we need to answer two questions in the affirmative. And the first question is this. Are you holding on to the truth? Are you holding on to the truth? This passage, it really begins with a warning because some 
haven't held on to the truth. Again, there's this departure. You see it, look down again one more time at verse 19. They went out from us, but they did not belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. However, they went out so it might be made clear that none of them belongs to us. And then note what he says. The exhortation comes in verse 24. What's the take home? Kind of what's their Sobrook Hills in light of this warning and this massive departure? Verse 24, what you have heard from the beginning is to remain in you. What did they hear from the beginning? The gospel centering on the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is Lord. He came in the flesh. He is the eternal Son of God. These are the truths that ground Christians. And so John is coming, and he is pouring cement into the foundation of this shaking church. John isn't talking about a Christian who, you know, and when he talks about they went out from us, he's not talking about Christians who, who depart from a teaching that, you know, that I don't agree with or that you might not agree with on a secondary issue of the Christian faith. No, he, he's talking about false teaching that if embraced, puts one outside the Christian faith. Heresy. He's talking about heresy. Heresy, heresy is a word that's reserved for teaching that prevents one from being able to become a believer, that prevents one from being saved. So it's not like your view of baptism or church governance or, or something like that. This is like you deny the Trinity, right? These are, these are the big massive, you deny the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. These are the big, big ones. You move that and there's no Christianity left. To reject those truths is to abandon and forfeit the faith. That's what he's talking about. And in this short letter, John focuses on two truths in particular in which the believer must remain. The first is this. Jesus is the eternal Son of God who became man. The eternal Son of God who became man. The incarnation. The deity of Jesus. The full humanity of Jesus. Our faith Remember, Christian, our faith is rooted in history. John begins his letter by saying, we saw him. We, the 12 apostles, saw him, heard him, touched him, ate with him, saw him die, saw him rise. We were there. We're not, as, as Peter would say, we're not just kind of um, spewing out cleverly devised fables we saw him with our own eyes. A thousand years ago, St. Anselm of Canterbury wrote a Christian classic that is still in print. Matter of fact, I bought it on Kindle this morning for 99 cents. It's still available after a thousand years. The Latin title is Cur Deus Homo. So Latin students, why the God-man? So why did God why did Jesus have to be both fully God and fully man? And the answer that Anselm gave was deeply resonant with 1 John. If Jesus wasn't really human, he couldn't represent us. We needed a representative. We needed a substitute, right? Man had a price to pay to a holy God. And so if Jesus wasn't fully human, he couldn't offer himself up in our place as a sacrifice for our sins. But if he wasn't really and fully divine, he couldn't pay an infinite debt to God. He's just a man. 
But since he was fully God, he could be, hang there on the cross for six hours and inhale the infinite punishment of justice against human sin in his body on the tree. That's, that's what made your redemption possible, is that Jesus was fully man and fully God. So again, Anselm was drawing his teaching straight from the kinds of truths that John is contending for there in the first century. John is saying, to disbelieve the full humanity and full divinity of Jesus Christ is to forfeit the faith. And that is exactly what the kind of early Gnostic teachers were doing. And they were spreading around and they were saying, he can't, there's no way that Jesus was fully man. There were some who said that, the Docetists, and then there were the Corinthians. And there were some who said, he can't be fully man. I mean, God would never touch human flesh. Flesh is gross. He would never do that. And John is saying, if he didn't touch human flesh, he couldn't save you. And if he wasn't God, if he, was, if, if he was just kind of became a man and then, and then he rose to the point where, as some cults teach, he rose to the point of godhood, as many of you will. That's what the teaching is in Mormonism, for example. And John would say that that's outside the Christian faith because they deny the biblical teaching about the divinity and deity of Jesus. This stuff matters. That's not just for egg-headed theologians. This stuff matters. It's the foundation of your faith, who Jesus is. So we must remain in this truth. Jesus is the eternal Son of God who became man. So can I just invite us to recite this ancient creed together? And this one just arises straight out of the prologue of John's gospel, the same John who writes 1 John. And so would you with me recite this Let's read these words together. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through Him, and apart from Him, not one thing was created that has been created. In Him was life. And that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed His glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Those are truths that will keep you. Those are truths that will hold you firm to the end because let me go back to where we started, right? There are going to be days in your Christian life, if you haven't experienced them yet, they probably are coming. There are going to be days in your life when doubt comes like the 82nd Airborne. It comes out of nowhere and suddenly you are under fire. Your faith is being shaken. And John is saying, in the heat of that moment... When doubt, as the hymn writer said, oh, when gloomy doubts prevail, when gloomy doubts prevail, in the heat of even persecution, John is saying, this truth will hold you fast. He was God. He always will be God. His throne is immovable. John says, I'm going to put some rock underneath your feet, and the rock is Jesus Christ himself. He cannot be moved. When everything else is shaken, he isn't, right? We sing that song, and the church has sung it for centuries. On Christ, the solid rock we stand, all other ground is sinking sand. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope. 
and stay. He is the one unignorable fact of history. He came to earth. We saw him, we touched him, we heard him. He died in agony to atone for our sins on the cross. He rose in triumph over the grave and over evil. He is God, he is the sovereign one. He reigns in glory and he will return. John is saying, verse 24, you hold on to this truth. Jesus Christ is the eternal son of God who became man. The next one is this. His death provided full salvation for all who trust him as savior and Lord. Critical truth. He talks about that right at the beginning of this chapter. We have an advocate when we sin against God. Jesus Christ, the righteous. And then he talks about the atonement and the value of the atonement. For 2,000 years, Christians have been boasting in the cross. Why? Because the Apostle Paul, in the sacred pages of Scripture, said, God forbid that I should boast except what? In the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Christians have been boasting in the cross for 2,000 years. We did it again this morning. We've been singing, the church has been singing at the cross Was it for sins that I had done? He groaned upon the tree. Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. The great hymn, and can it be? He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love, and bled for Adam's helpless race. And then we sang this morning, No fate I dread, I know I am forgiven. The future sure, the price it has been paid. For Jesus bled and suffered for my pardon, and he was raised to overthrow the grave. Church, that has generated worship among Christians now for 2,000 years. You hold on to that truth, you'll make it to the end. That's what John is saying. Hold on to this. This isn't going to move. This is Jesus. This is what he has done. This is who he is. The next point is this. We remain in the faith by holding fast to the truth. You know what I love? I, I love that from the earliest ministries among children in this church, they're being taught the word of God. And then there's this milestone event where they transition from preschool into Brook Hills Kids Ministry and the parents give them their first Bible. And it's a big deal. I mean, they have a party. They go wild. And then once they come in, they are taught little by little, more and more to internalize, to memorize Scripture, to understand, to learn God's ways in His Word. I I snuck into um, student ministry down the hill on a Wednesday night not too long ago, and I was so encouraged. I walked in, and Wes Sullivan happened to be teaching that night, and he walks up to the front after worship starts, and he says, open your Bible to the book of Ephesians. And I found out that's what they're studying through. They're studying verse by verse through the book of Ephesians. That is not trendy in student ministry. But we're not chasing trends. We're making disciples. Right? That's the purpose, is to be grounded, we use this term, rooted in the truth so that we won't move when the storm comes, right? Our faith is secure, anchored in Christ himself, truth rooted deeply in their hearts, our hearts. That's how we're going to remain. That's how we're going to endure. Truth matters. Are you taking in truth? Are you feeding on truth? Are you feasting on God's word? 
delighting in his word? Do you know more about his word now than you knew this time last year? More about the character of God revealed in scripture than you knew this time last year? Are you enduring? Look, the the need that John is talking about is there is a need for endurance. It's a non-negotiable. Now, let let me clarify. So, there are Christian teachers who so emphasize the need for endurance that, that it, in effect, becomes a work by which we merit our salvation. You know, it's almost as though God waits there at the finish line and He says, well, we'll, we'll see if, if you're going to make it or not. So, once you break through the tape, okay, you made it. Great. I was hoping you would uh, and you made it, so come on in. It's almost as though God is making His decision of acceptance and justification based on how uh, how we ran, right? No, while, while Scripture calls us clearly to persevere, this is in your notes, salvation is not a gift God gives to all who endure. Rather, fill in that next one, endurance is a gift God gives to all He has saved. You see, the emphasis is different. Salvation is not a gift God gives to all who endure. No, endurance is a gift God gives to all he has saved. You don't make it to heaven because God hoped you'd be resilient and you ended up being resilient. For all who endure all the way to the end, you know what we're going to discover when we get there? Perseverance was a gift as well. The persevering faith was also his gift (laughs) that's how set we are, that's how glorious the doctrine of assurance of salvation is in the New Testament. John chapter 10, Romans chapter 8, and read that stuff and get get it into your soul. So scripture teaches twin truths. These are not in opposition to each other. They're friends, the perseverance of the saints and the preservation of the saints. Both are true. The perseverance of the saints is work out your salvation. Persevere. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The preservation of the saints is for it is God who is at work within you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Perseverance of the saints is Jude Jude verse 21. Keep yourselves in the love of God. He's not kidding. (laughs) Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So that's the perseverance. And then you read three verses later. And that same Jude says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless. Keep yourselves, he is able to keep you. Perseverance of the saints, the preservation of the saints. They're twin truths. Perseverance is necessary though. Endurance is a sign of life. Are we remaining in him, remaining in the truth? There's a a saying Nobody knows exactly who to attribute it to. It's often attributed to D.L. Moody. And it goes like this. Faith that fizzles before the finish was faulty from the first. Let me say that again. Faith that fizzles before the finish was faulty from the first. You ever seen somebody who you thought was definitely a believer? You're more convinced they were a believer than you're a believer. And then they depart from the faith, and they no longer even claim to follow Jesus. This is happening right now in a close friend of my, my own. From childhood, I've known Josh Harris. We used to jump the prickly bushes in front of my dad's church in New Orleans because he would visit his aunt. And his aunt's husband was my dad's associate pastor. So whenever they would come and visit um, his aunt, we would play together. 
He'd teach me how to do back handsprings in the church playground. And he has now publicly rejected Christ. And it is so sobering. I've heard my friend and my brother preach the gospel better than I ever will. And yet now, I watch his Instagram account and it is like he is trying to suppress the truth. It is an experiment in the suppression of the truth. Day by day, he's, he's systematically rejecting everything he once taught and proclaimed. It's so sobering, if you've seen that before. I still pray. I still pray for Josh on a daily basis that his abandonment of the faith is not final. That maybe he's like the prodigal son and he goes off and he squanders his inheritance, but then he comes to this realization it was better in the father's house and he comes back. That's my prayer for him, that his fall will not be final. But if not, the apostle John says to all who depart from the faith and persevere in that departure and rejection all the way to the end, John says, they went out from us, but they were never of us. A sign of life is endurance. The, the ultimate sign of life that you see is you persevered to the end. The Spirit empowered you for perseverance to the end. Author John Piper said something eye-opening. I went back to it after Josh made his public statement. And John Piper wrote these words in order to help people process the apostasy of people they know and respect. And he said this. He uses himself as an example. If in the coming years I commit apostasy and fall away from Christ, it will not be because I have not tasted of the word of God and the spirit of God and the miracles of God. But if over the next 10 or 20 years, John Piper begins to cool off spiritually and lose interest in spiritual things and become more fascinated with making money and writing Christless books, if I buy the lie that a new wife would be exhilarating and that the children can fend for themselves and that the church of Christ is a drag and that the incarnation is a myth and that there is one life to live, so let us eat, drink, and be merry, if that happens, then know that the truth is this, John Piper was mightily deceived in the first 50 years of his life. His faith was an alien vestige of his father's joy. His fidelity to his wife was a temporary passion and compliance with social pressure. His fatherhood was the outworking of natural instincts. His preaching was driven by the love of words and crowds. His writing was a love affair with fame. And his praying was the deepest delusion of all, an attempt to get God to supply the resources of his vanity. If this possibility does not make me serious and vigilant in the pursuit of everlasting joy, what will? Christian brother, sister, are you holding fast to the truth? Are you rooting your mind and heart and soul in the truth of God's word? Are you holding on to is the truth holding on to you? Is the truth holding on to you? So according to John in this letter, there are two uh, game changers that make perseverance possible so that it's not just all up to you and your sweat and your muscle and your grit, right? It, um, your activism, no. Two game changers, and it's the word of God and the spirit of God. 
in John's letter, those are the game changers. The, the word of God, the truth of God, right? So verse 20, verse 21, verse 23, you see verse 23, what you've heard from the beginning. So this body of truth, this message of the apostles, you heard it at the beginning, hold on to that. That's a game changer. You get that truth down deep in your soul. So the truth of God and the spirit of God, the spirit of God. So this metaphor for the Holy Spirit throughout John's letter is, an, is a classic Old Testament metaphor, and it's the metaphor of anointing oil. So in the Old Testament, anointing oil was poured over someone who was called by God to a certain task. So, and it represented the, the power of the Holy Spirit to equip you for the task. So if you're gonna become king, David is anointed with oil by Samuel. If you're gonna become a, pr- a priest, you're anointed with oil to empower you for that task that God has given you. Well, in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is poured out on all flesh, So we're all anointed, empowered to receive the truth and anointed for the task of gospel proclamation. That's the beauty of the new covenant. The Holy Spirit fills all of them. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy, right? That's what you see in Acts chapter two. And the Holy Spirit, according to John, this is so uh, visible and conspicuous in his letter. The Holy Spirit is the inside teacher. It's God's move-in disciple maker. He's conforming us to the truth as we hear his word preached. He's conforming us to the truth as we read and engage his word. So what is John saying? He's saying, you have received an anointing. It's not something you have to go find. It's yours from day one. You've received the Holy Spirit and the anointing you received, he says, remains in you. And you see those words? You don't need anyone to teach you. Now, That doesn't mean teachers are obsolete. John is teaching in this letter. (laughs) So it doesn't obliterate Ephesians 4, pastors and teachers and so forth. Um, Here's the point. John is, is teaching in this letter. The point is the Holy Spirit is there to do what the human teacher can't. The Holy Spirit convinces us. Jesus said this. He convinces us of the truth. He convicts us of unrighteousness. He's transforming us, right? Jesus said in John 16, 13, he calls the Holy Spirit the spirit of truth. And what does he say to his disciples? The spirit of truth will lead you into truth. Further and further into truth. So we are, this is in your notes, exhorted to remain in him we are also promised God's spirit will remain in us. That is such good news. That tells us that this sign of life isn't something you conjure up in your own strength and your own power. So we're not talking here. Please don't mistake this. This week and last week, we're not talking about um, willpower, mustering up willpower to endure to the end. We're talking about spirit-empowered endurance in the truth for the rest of your life. He makes that possible, a life of faithfulness. Not endurance born of self-effort, but endurance born of spirit-empowered endurance. So, Brook Hills, a few things for us to think about. One, love the truth. talked about a couple weeks ago, wanting us to be a church that is steeped in the gospel, 
You know, I've heard that phrase before and I loved it, but I actually didn't know what it meant. I didn't know what steeped really meant until this week. Um, my wife and I did something we, ne- I don't know if we've ever done it in 23 years that we've been married. We made tea, hot tea together, like a cup, like a spot of tea. Like we, we, had, we had tea together and yet we felt so British, we felt so like hipster, cool, and we're just making hot tea and we sat down together with our, you know, with our tea. <laughs> but what do you do when you make tea or you put the hot water in there and then you put, you put a bag in there and you, it's steeping. That's what that metaphor is. I just learned that this week. You're, you're, the bag is steeping in the water. And what that is, is that's the process by which the water absorbs the flavor that's in the bag. And so now I know even better what I didn't know when I said we want to be a church that's steeped in the gospel. Do you want to be a Christian that's steeped in God's word? You want the, that bag of God's eternal truth soaking. You want, it, you want your life to be absorbing the flavor of the truthfulness of Scripture, absorbing the flavor of the beauty of truth, of the wisdom of His Word. We want that filling our lives, taking over our lives. Steep your soul in the Word of God. This is why practically we have and encourage you to have a daily Bible reading plan. If you don't need that because you read every day and you come up with your own plan, that's fine too. But if you, like many of the rest of us, it helps to have a plan. It keeps you on task. Then by all means, get yourself a Bible reading plan so you can steep your soul in the truth of God's word. So love the truth. Two, love the church. Love the church. Notice how John says the, the final straw, the final evidence that they're gone is they're no longer in church. They have departed, they went out from us. They left the fellowship of believers. One of the best things that our parents, my parents did for my brother and sister and me is they instilled within us, by God's grace, a love for the church. We're pastor's kids, so I could tell you horrible stories about church. I could write a really nasty book about the church. Um, but, but the book I'd rather write is Why Jesus Loves the Church. Because <laughs> Jesus' church is his bride. He looks at her in a way he doesn't look at anybody else. It's his bride. The, the book of Hebrews tells believers, and they're looking over their shoulder, and they're thinking about abandoning the faith. And he's, what does he say? The writer of Hebrews says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as is the habit of some. All the more you see this day approaching, draw near to each other, encourage one another in worship. Hebrews 10 is a gathered worship text. The younger generation, all the stats are coming out, and they're dismal stats. The younger generation, they, they, they leave for college, and they're done. They quit the church. They stop going. Well, it's in the natural fallout of raising a generation of kids who wake up on Sunday morning and say, are we going to church or not? That question didn't make any sense in my upbringing. We never, we never asked our parents, are we going to church? It was, it was an assumption. It was a God meets with his people on the Lord's day, on Sunday. We sing ourselves deep as we hear the saints sing. We join with their voices and we pray together and we hear his word preached and we meet at the table of the Lord and we see people baptized and that matters, that strengthens us. 
in ways we can't even fully calculate. Gathered worship is a means of grace for our perseverance, clearly in the New Testament. So love the church, and then finally, love the Lord. Love the Lord. I, I love what um, author Brian Chapel. I don't know if he's still the president of Covenant Seminary, but Brian Chapel said this many years ago. He said, one day I was pouring milk in the cereal of my young ch- children, and he said, I, that word picture stuck in my mind, and he said, this is my job, to fill up their hearts with love for Jesus. Love the Lord. Are your affections for Jesus Christ increasing? Here's how, don't put your notes away yet. I hear some stirring going on. So here's how the early church prepared new believers for lifelong faith. So let me take you to another time and and to a different place in the world. So let's go back to 200 AD and let's go to Egypt. And on the eve of Easter Sunday, a group of believers stays up all night. It's a prayer vigil all night. And they're intermittently praying and being taught by pastors and they're reading scripture together. And it's the biggest night of their life because what happens tomorrow is baptism. These brand new believers are about to be baptized in the morning. And at dawn, they're they're led out to this flowing pool of water. And before they enter in, they are asked this question. Do you renounce the power of Satan? And that was a part of it because Ephesians chapter 6, Ephesians chapter 2, Paul talks about how Satan blinded our minds from seeing the glory of Christ and how before we knew Christ and we were alive to him, we were dead and we were serving Satan's cause. And, And so these Christians, brand new Christians are asked, do you renounce his rule over your life? And they would say, we do. And then they were anointed with oil. And then they would proceed into the water. And as they entered into the waters, they would stand there and they were asked this question. Do you believe in God the Father Almighty? And they reply, I believe. And they're plunged down into the water and then they're raised up again. Then they're asked the second question. Do you believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who was born of the Holy Spirit and Mary the Virgin and was crucified under Pontius Pilate and was dead and buried and rose on the third day alive from the dead and ascended into the heavens and sits at the right hand of the Father and will come to judge the living and the dead? And these Egyptian believers said, I believe, and they're immersed again in water. And then a third question is asked. Do you believe in the Holy Spirit? and at the holy church and the resurrection of the flesh and they say, I believe, and down they go into the waters one final time. You know who gave us that account of Egyptian church history? A man named Hippolytus who was discipled by a man named Irenaeus who was discipled by a man named Polycarp who was discipled by the author of this letter. Ground them in the truth. Get them to say it. Get them to own it in the waters from day one. It matters. Truth matters. A few, few years ago, hundreds of thousands of people were following the blog of a, a woman who was going through a lot. Her name was Kara Tippetts, young woman in Colorado Springs, four children. Her husband was a pastor. She was diagnosed with stage four breast cancer. And the cancer would go into remission and then uh, she would battle it and it would go away and then it would come back and and people were following this. Her story was picked up by the New York Times, picked up by World Magazine, Washington Post, all over the place. 
And in the spring of 2015, she wrote a, a note to hundreds of thousands of people who had been following her story because it was the end. And here's what she said. My little body has grown tired of battle and treatment is no longer helping. But what I see, what I know, what I have is Jesus. He has still given me breath and with it I pray I would live well and fade well. I get to draw my people close kiss them, tenderly speak love over their lives. I get to laugh and cry and wonder over heaven. I do not feel I have the courage for this journey, but I have Jesus. The the truth of the gospel that centers on Jesus can be an anchor for your soul. It's meant to be an anchor for your soul. Maybe, maybe, You're here this morning, and for the first time, you've never even trusted in Christ in an initial way. You've never heard this good news about him in a way that makes you want to run in his direction. But maybe this morning, God's Holy Spirit is opening your heart, and you're ready to say, I renounce Satan. Show me the waters. Anoint me with oil. Spirit, come. Give me freedom and power to live for the glory of Jesus all my days. I pray that happens in your heart now. For those of you who are believers in Christ, let me ask you this question. When's the last time you said, Lord, I don't trust I have the power to make it through to the end in my own strength. I want you to keep me. I want you to hold me fast through your word and your promises. I want you to keep me vigilant to see these signs of life. Renew in me a heart that's eager to obey all that I'm learning, the obedience test. Renew in me a deep commitment to my brothers and sisters in the local church, the love test. Renew in me an unshakable conviction of the truth, the truth test. Brook Hills, let these signs of life be increasingly evident in all who follow Jesus.